0: That's heritageradionetwork.org slash 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you.
1: Today's program is being brought to you by Martha and Marley Spoon. Martha Stewart's best recipes and fresh ingredients delivered to your door. Get three free meals today when you use code HERITAGE
2: at marleyspoon.com.
1: Hi, and welcome to A Taste of the Past. Thanks for joining me today on this weekly journey through culinary history. I'm your host, Linda Palaccio. And something very interesting um, has just been published, but it makes a lot of people think about 100 or so years ago, I think, what are we talking, 111 years ago, You may remember, some of you may have been assigned the book in your history classes or literature classes, and that is Upton Sinclair's book, The Jungle. It was a vivid portrait of life and death in turn-of-the-century America meatpacking industries. It was a grim indictment of those factories exposing the appalling work conditions in the meat industry. His description of diseased, rotten, and contaminated meat shocked the public and led to new government regulations of the food industry. Now there's a new book saying not quite the same things, maybe not quite in the same way. But Katie Kiefer um, has written a new book in the Food Controversy series by Reaction Press called What's the Matter with Meat? A, criti- a critique on the meat producing industry here in the United States. hmm. Uh, here we are 111 years later. And not only in the U.S. but around the world. And how it affects our planet, not only the working conditions for the humans in the factories, but how the industry as a whole affects our planet. Katie is a former professional chef and food publicist. She's a writer, producer, and... A host of a weekly podcast right here on Heritage Radio called "What Doesn't Kill You." Do I hear a theme going on? No, no. What doesn't kill you? What's the matter with me? Yeah, it gets embarrassing. (laughs) Which focuses on food policy. Welcome, Katie. You're no stranger to this this studio here in the back of Roberta's in Bushwick, Brooklyn. I've I've been around about as long as you have. That's right. right. That's right. You know, people still read the jungle to get that realistic picture of conditions in the meatpacking industry but you know it was also the thing is i mean it was yes it was re- revealing the horrific conditions in the meatpacking industry in the meat production industry it was also an ex- a book about the exploitation of immigrants in the chicago area particularly in that human condition and it was also a bit of a socialist progressive movement kind of political statement but in all honesty i mean your book doesn't do much different it gets quite the same in fact and revealing all kinds of horrific conditions what has changed and what hasn't changed well going back to that take us back to the turn of the century what what was going on there in terms of anything different in the meat industry
3: uh, well, actually surprisingly little is different in fact it 's remarkable how much it 's the same um, as uh, back in uh, the, around the turn of the century, the book was published in one thousand nine hundred six I believe um, the jungle and uh, at that time, there was uh, the, a very similar consolidation of the industry to what we have now, where we have you know basically four big packers.
1: In each category of meat, um, and, I, that was, I, and I was actually surprised to read there was only four major packers. But that, yeah, wow. I mean,
3: and there's four four big cattle packers. There's four big, you know, uh, poultry, and four big hog people. Um, and so that, and in fact, that that consolidation in the market at that time uh, led to uh, some anti um, uh, antitrust legislation, the Sherman Act. Among others, uh, that strove to break up those big consolidated companies, so that the competition was fostered in a you know in a more capitalist way. Um, But we have pretty much the same situation now with market consolidation and the impact that that has on uh, farmers um, and workers is is pretty much the same. It's it's a, a driving down of price uh so farmers ranchers who are raising these animals are um you know basically exploited by the companies who are able, because of their consolidation are able to dictate price to the producers because they the producers have no place to go
1: with their animals besides these big packing facilities they're, so they if they want to if they want to make a buck for all the animals they're raising you're saying they they they're They've got to go to these slaughterhouses these... and producers and Absolutely. packers, and they really don't have a choice. For,
3: I mean, if you're raising fifty thousand hogs, and they all come to market weight more or less around the same time, you better have somebody who's prepared to accept however many you know tens of thousands you need to. Uh, take to market at that point, and if you have <clears throat> a beef with the big packer in your ab- in your neighborhood, <laughs> nice choice words. And- <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. Uh, and and you know, and they decide that they they don't have time for you in their schedule. Well, you're, every single minute that your animals are still on feed, first of all, costs you money, and secondly, w- makes them larger, which doesn't conform to the specs that you have to adhere to in order to get into grocery store chains.
1: Yeah. All right, so that's that's a problem with the um, having a, you know, a a um, monopoly that's of, right. of these producers. But what are some what are the what are really the other some of the other big problems at least in comparing them to the days of that Upton Sinclair was writing about and I'm sure that the Chicago stockyards were ugh, I mean they were huge yeah. and disgusting. So what what are the what are the big problems we're talking about in terms of of inner industry? Not let's we'll say not. No, let's talk about meatpacking too. I mean, aside from the monopoly of these four big packers, what are the what are the, the major problems that you know people are looking at? Oh well. <laughs> where do we begin? Yeah, No. Uh, um and so in in, in balance with where yeah. they were 100 years ago. Well,
3: 100 years ago we did not have concentrated area feeding operations. That was a a, a phenomenon that began uh really around the late 50s early 60s. And describe um, that a little bit for our listeners. And what that is, what happened was this. Uh out in Colorado, a family uh, a guy named William Monfort um had he had a uh feeding operation in other words he was he recognized that he could keep sending cattle into slaughter facilities if he aggregated them and kept them on grain for a couple of months um, until you know because grass doesn't grow all year round right Right. Right. (laughs) so he started feeding animals for his rancher friends he would like bring the cattle in from other ranchers And feed them until grass was available and then or they got to slaughter weight and then they would ship them off to wherever they shipped them off to. And what he realized was that if he built a slaughterhouse right at the feed yard, then he didn't have to move those cattle and that cut a piece of the supply chain out and made it cheaper. And so that was the beginning of sort of consolidating uh, and aggregating animals in in. You know, smaller facilities, um, and that concept spread very quickly. In fact, it was actually really developed by the poultry industry, but it it got its sort of, um, I would say, uh, it got it, it gained its notoriety more through the cattle industry, mm. um, and that became that's become the norm. So um, that phenomenon is is probably the you know, and that began in the poultry industry right after World War II. Um, Again, because uh, it was cheaper to feed them all year round, you had birds all year round, because before that, chicken was kind of like, if you think about it, chicken was kind of a Sunday night supper, it was kind yeah. of a special event. Yeah. It was not the ubiquitous meat that we take for granted now. Default, default it, dinner. <laughs> right. It was, I mean, it was absolutely a kind of a special event. Um, not, you know, not the everyday thing, because people raise chickens for eggs. They didn't raise them for birds, for so meat once birds. once
1: in a while you would, you know, yeah. So laying hen would right, exactly. get the
3: <laughs> Exactly. So, um, and it was really, there were a couple of different guys who figured out the model with um, with poultry, with that vertical integration, which is what it's called when hmm. you start stacking up, uh, you know, all of the, the features of raising animals Um, including uh, the genetics and the eggs, you know, like right down to that, uh, right down to the granular stuff of raising the feed for them. Um, That's what Tyson did so well. Uh, And that was actually started by another guy named Jim, John or Jim Jewell. But, Tyson was about contemporaneous with him, and he really took it further. And he started, you know, he aggregated his birds into a big barn. He started, uh, you know, slaughtering them year-round, packing them on ice, taking them to restaurants. And that's one of the ways that, in which he was able to popularize chicken. And then it, it just, you know, it just went on from there. Um, and uh, and now we have a system in which uh, there are contracts given to farmers to raise birds for big, what they call aggregators, like Tyson. Uh, pilgrims pride sanderson those yeah. are the or the you know those are the big purdue big names you see in the, they're in the, the big major ones. grocery yeah. chains and by the way they're there these are also names that are all being named in uh lawsuits class action suits for uh price fixing hmm. both for the groceries you know grocery stores but also price fixing back to the contract farmers who again because of the monopolies uh, don't have any place else to go with their twenty or 30,000 birds that they've right. raised for this contract.
1: But now, birds, you know, I'm sure most of you have seen videos or incorporated in films or something of, of these big bird plants, if you will. Or even, uh, well, I can't get the images from Food, Inc. out of my head. <laughs> the, yeah. the horrible, if you've seen that film, um, about, uh, you know, about the, the pork and cattle industry and the, and yeah. the slaughtering. Um, so, just, and birds are little now let 's just multiply that toward these yeah, humongous animals, well, you were asking me
3: about the impact, like what has made the industry sort of worse than it was before. I mean, some of the issues some of the labor issues were resolved after the Sherman Act was passed, and unions began coming into meat packing houses, but thanks to the Reagan administration. Um, when he busted the the uh, air traffic controllers union, that was kind of the beginning of the end for labor unions in this country. Mm. And that had a tremendous impact on the meat industry in particular. Um, once they were able to dispense with trade unions, they could bring in immigrant workers right. just as they did at the turn of the century and and exploit them just the way they did then. So there we are, full So circle. we are literally at full circle. I mean, there was a period of time in the 50s, 60s, 70s, when uh, meatpacking was actually quite a good living. I mean, you could make as much as 30 bucks an hour. Um, And in Australia, they still do. Uh, they are hanging on to their unions more successfully mm. than we have. Interesting, um, but they, uh, you know, it was it was a solid middle class job, and it had union protections in terms of injury, paid leave, medical compensation, and so forth. That's not so
1: much the case now. Well, there was. I mean, at the time that um, Sinclair wrote the book, The Jungle. I mean, there was a large demand for meat. Yeah, and now I'm sure it's we, it's even greater. Our... our Universe has our world has grown, yeah, um, and there is a main problem too, in that we're we have a lot of small humane producers and packers, and they are around, and there are small farmers that one can can support, but majority of people living in you know cities or other areas they they're not a not able to pay the prices for those meats often, um, or resistant to because mm-hmm. America spends such a paltry amount on our on our monthly food food basket right um but so is that part of the problem too i mean are are we are we creating part of the problem by demanding this cheap meat
3: oh no doubt about it and and meat packers you know the big companies will point to like consumer demand you know sure we'd love to you know increase our animal welfare pay our workers more or you know do these various things but you know then we'd have to raise our prices and Can't people do it won't on three ninety nine a pound right? right yeah, and that is I mean that is true, but what taxpayers I think are are less aware of is that many of the costs associated with these uh large aggregated facilities uh are what what are called externalized, meaning that for instance the cost of of um, industry pollution is something that is often falls to the taxpayer uh, to do the cleanup when there is a problem, or you know your property values will lose will uh, diminish because if you if somebody opens up a, a you know a hog farm next door to you that's going to have a real impact on your quality of life oh, yeah. and because agriculture is uniquely um uh, uniquely uh Unregulated compared to other industries qua industries, like they still it 's still called an agricultural concern, but it 's really a factory farm mm-hmm. um, and and so they don 't have the same regulations for pollution that any other industry would have, so the onus is not on the company to clean up uh, the spill that happens in a river when somebody 's lagoon ruptures or you know to clean up the water uh, in a water table. Uh, when something seeps into the water table. I mean, it's, you know, or to or to provide these uh, f- contract farms with um, air scrubbers or filters or something that would mitigate some of the odors and some of the greenhouse gases that are, emanate from these facilities. Which can be deadly. In, oh, in deadly, interest, absolutely. Right? There are, every year there are accidents of somebody going down to clean a filter or to clean something and being overwhelmed by hydrogen sulfide and ammonia gases and dying within a few minutes. And in In fact, if, for example, the big fans that are used to exhaust a poultry or hog house fail, those animals will die within five to seven
1: minutes from the gases accumulated there. So were there similar, there there had to have been similar incidents and accidents even 100 years ago?
3: I don't think that there was this level of concentration of the animals. And so, uh, nobody was aggregating ten thousand hogs. No one had a hog farm that was ten thousand mm. or twenty or fifty thousand hogs that just did not exist
1: I mean the waste is something when we 're starting we are just now starting to read more and more about the impact of the the waste from uh oh it's it 's tremendous livestock
3: in China, for example, they have rendered uh, their arable land and their drinking water virtually uh, unfit for agriculture, or human consumption. And one of the reasons is because of the many, like, for example, they a lot of these CAFOs spread the manure on neighboring fields um, as, as fertilizer. Well, that makes all kinds of sense, except that the fertilizer, that manure has not been denatured uh, for the antibiotics, for the, uh, up until just recently, chickens were routinely fed arsenic. To control a a disease called coccidiosis. And uh, that arsenic, because, you know, it turns into a heavy metal, which is then polluting to the ground. It's taken up in plant roots, it goes into the water table. And the same thing with all the antibiotics, which, for example, the Chinese use enormous quantities of. I mean, they're only just beginning to get a handle on what they're doing with their antibiotics because Mm. they have such, um, so much pressure to produce rapidly that they give way more than they actually need to i mean it's it's a, it's kind of an out of control in some places it's quite an out of control
1: industry yeah i mean, it's just ugh, i see us you know wallowing in this sea of, of yeah animal waste which i mean is a problem and yet we continue to demand you know, disproportionate amounts of of meat much more than compared to i'd say like a hundred years ago um Per,
3: per I I would leave you to to I, don't, I mean I don't know <laughs> to do because I mean I feel like I have a quite a quite an extensive cookbook collection and when you go back through those old menus like in the New Orleans Times Picayune yeah. cookbook or something like that from seventy five or a hundred years ago meat
1: is a big part of the diet no you're right I mean big and big cuts of meat always these huge yeah. roasts yeah you, you know you're right I'm but do you have um, on the at the top of your head or in notes somewhere the per capita uh, consumption in America. Oh, in America.
3: It's, oh, it's it's well over 50 60 pounds per person. Hmm. Um, it could be. I don't think it's. I wanted to say a hundred, but it's not. But it's 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 you know it's definitely no, maybe it is about one hundred and twenty pounds per person. That would sound right to yeah, me. Yeah, it's it's really it's kind of staggering.
1: <laughs> yeah, it is. It is.
2: But,
3: um, but the thing that's staggering about it is not. It's, it's the it's the quality. Of the meat, because when you think about it, it's that meat that's being consumed is basically nuggets, burgers, you know, it's fast food that really protein is the main focus in fast food. And so that's, I think, where most people's meat consumption comes from. I don't think that people are necessarily buying themselves a steak three times a week because no, we can
1: afford that. Well, and as you just pointed out, you know, you don't pick up a, a, a cookbook and see these big joints of, of meat, you yeah. know, as the center of the table we are trying to get away from that a little bit not making it so much the center yeah. of the plate but uh, no, consumption is is
3: diminishing in the United States uh beef consumption has gone down by quite a bit uh pork is about the same as it has been for the last 25, 30 years, and chicken has risen. Um, But around the world, you know, where meat is really making its its big uh, play for consumers is in Asia and uh, India. You know, developing countries, they see meat in a completely different way than we do, which is we take it for granted. For developing countries where the meat industry has not necessarily had a lot of uh, success, or they, you know, it just hasn't been typically part of their diet. That's a place like in India, where most of the country used to be a vegetarian diet, they have now embraced eating meat in a way that is, is, you know, definitely going to be problematic in terms wow. of managing the problems that we, the United States, have discovered through the creation of this concentrated area feeding operation and the
1: aggregation and the, and the monopolization. That same model has been exported around the world. I want to talk about some of those other countries and, and things that are going on from this end and mm-hmm. their end when we come back after this short break. At the top of the show, you heard that this program has been brought to you by Martha and Marley Spoon, Martha Stewart's best recipes delivered to your door. If you're like most Heritage Radio listeners, you love cooking quick, healthy meals on weeknights, but sometimes get stuck when you don't have time for planning, shopping, and prepping. Or maybe you're short on new and interesting dinner ideas or dreading a trip to the grocery store. Who wants to haul all those bags home after a long day at work? Not me. That's why I'm excited to share Martha and Marley Spoon with you. They send seasonal, pre-portioned ingredients and Martha Stewart's best recipes right to your door. No grocery shopping, no schlepping. You can choose from 10 healthy recipes a week and get delicious meals on the table in just 30 minutes. How does it work? Simply go to marleyspoon.com. Choose your delivery day, and select your dishes. It's completely flexible, so you can skip, cancel, or change preferences any time. You'll never waste food again, and best of all, it's easy to use, with six beautifully photographed steps for each 30-minute recipe. Now, I have to say that I did try, they sent me a couple to try, because I wasn't going to read this if I didn't try them. And the one thing that I was impressed with, many things that I was impressed with, but I was impressed with the fact that they were packed and shipped very well with a lot of freezer packs. It was really cold when I got my ingredients. And the meats were all marked, those that had meats were marked sustainably raised and no antibiotics. And the Portions of the other ingredients were all specific to the recipe, so there really was no waste, which I, I thought was very thoughtful. They were flavorful and nutritious. I didn't think I needed the grains in the in one of the steak and vegetable recipes. I thought, oh, that's going to be too much. By the time I finished cooking it all, it wasn't too much. It was just the right portion for two people, which I had selected a two-person, and it was more nutritious than I would have made ordinarily interesting dishes that I wouldn't necessarily have thought of. So I urge you to try it. It's a good plan. And you know what? If you want to try it out, go to marleyspoon.com before you do anything else and choose your meal plan now. On the checkout page, just type in the code HERITAGE for your three free meals. That's marleyspoon.com. Enter the code HERITAGE. Hi, we're back on A Taste of the Past. I'm speaking with Katie Kiefer, and Katie is the author of a new book, What's the Matter with Meat? A new issue that's an old issue. It <laughs> yeah. doesn't look like it's going away anytime soon. But um And and Katie, this has been your bailiwick now for the past, what, eight years or so. You've been studying meat industry inside and out. And um, you were talking about the other countries and how they're treating the meat industry and what's happening um tell me a little there are some countries that are way ahead of us in terms of of their management of the meat packing and tell us about those and if there's anything we can aspire to uh sure absolutely the uh the european union has um for one thing, they score
3: way higher on animal welfare than any American, any other country does. Um, they uh, typically they don't have the big. For one thing, they don't they don't have the land. To do the kind of concentrated area feeding operations that we do, I mean, we think of those as yeah, it has a relatively small footprint in terms of land, but you've got to have quite a bit of space for it, and they have quite specific rules about how many animals you can aggregate. Because, and why is that my favorite word in this I don't show? Know, but it I don't sounds know. I've great. Said it like twenty times, I'm <laughs> makes sorry. you sound
1: really smart. I know,
3: right? <laughs> Um but they you know they don't put they they have laws about how many animals can be put into one of these concentrated area feeding operations, so they haven't gone lock stock and barrel into that model the way other countries brazil Australia even to a certain actually i take that back not Australia because Australia is all range fed right um, they've got so much pasture that those animals are just out there until it 's time to round them up and take them to the slaughterhouse they are growing their uh KFO industry they are growing that aspect of it but it is not the dominant model in Australia as it is elsewhere Brazil has gone for it the Chinese love it um even the Indians which don't typically do as much they don't do a lot of cattle and obviously not a lot of pork but they do they have gone whole hog for the chicken <laughs>
1: <laughs> gone whole hog into the poultry industry so um well, no, I know our small, the small producers here in America, um, small farmers, even like Heritage Foods, who sponsor who um, started this network, yeah, um, deal with farmers who practice all these humane, if you can call killing humane, humane killing and treatment of animals mm-hmm. um, when they take them to slaughter. Uh, is that by and large practiced by these countries who are, who seem to manage their industries better, or I, I, and yes. is is this what we're down to? Is 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 it really? the humane treatment of animals? Is that more what we need to to be focusing on? or? Uh, well, in the United States, I, I will give credit to
3: uh, many of these industry leaders um, because they have, I mean, after all, it was McDonald's who hired Temple Grandin if, to design better facilities uh, for slaughtering. If people haven't cattle. heard
1: of Temple yeah, she's the Grand animal she
3: psychologist a- from uh, Colorado State University who, um, there was a very famous biopic made about her, but she, um, she is autistic herself and she has a kind of unique understanding of how animals process information, um, which she attributes to her own autism. And, uh, she was able to figure out what was making animals frightened on their way to the killing box. And she designed a whole different system. Uh, for them to sort of walk through that aided them in uh, remaining calm, and um, and she also made it clear to the animal handlers that you can't yell, you can't be, you know, banging things at them or hitting them. Now, don't get me wrong, that stuff still. Often still happens. Yeah, right. um, But it is a much improved system, um, and that is very much uh, something that started here in the United States. And Temple has designed facilities around the world. Um, the Australians have definitely gone for her models. You know, animal handling is a problem. It's a it's a big problem in some places, um, but there are so many other issues uh, that. Uh, have evolved that Upton Sinclair I don't think would ever have, have uh, dreamed of. I mean, the just the concentrated area feeding operation, which in theory is a great idea. It's like brilliant to put slam all these animals into a small place. It's, I mean, the meat industry is always saying it's very efficient, and it is. It's way efficient.
1: But it's, it's kind of disgusting at it's, the same time. It's
3: kind yeah. of gross. I mean, you can run a good feedlot. I mean,
1: I've seen a good one. I've seen a few good ones. Well, back then he was also, I mean, he was part of the progressives too, you know, who yeah. were upset by the growth of cities and, and a lot of the you know changes and problems that are you know, arose from that. We were still, by and large, an agrarian society, and then, yeah. so then, as you mentioned before, that was farming. You know, you had an animal on the land and slaughtered it when you needed it. You weren't making your income from that. I mean, except then ranchers, except ranchers. I mean that.
3: Well, I came mean along. by the uh, by the time of of uh, of Upton Sinclair's book, um, railway. Had track had been laid all the way out to the West Coast. Right. And so the people who were starting to really make money on cattle were the ranchers who were used to ride there. You know, that's where cowboys came from, for heaven's sakes. Like, you would drive your cattle up to Kansas City or Chicago. Now, the problem with a cattle drive is that you can't always guarantee a good amount of, of nutritious forage for them. And secondly, just the act of walking that many miles... We'll take a weight of off of them. Right. Yeah. And so being able to put cattle into railway cars and take them to the big cities was a huge step towards making beef available um, to, you know, a greater part of the population than had been able to enjoy it before. Um and you know, got into restaurants, and I think that helped restaurant culture rise. Yes, I mean, yeah. it's it's really you know, there's a knock on effect for everything that happens. And
1: Supermarkets were rose. I absolutely, mean, you know, all, yeah, it's it, it was definitely a springboard effect for a lot of a yeah. lot of different growth for the development industry. of yeah. the food industry as we know right. it now. Essentially, absolutely, um, there is something that that Upton Sinclair would not have written about or thought about Um, and that is an unfortunate incident that's happening you say there's not enough arable land there's not enough pasture land so things are happening abroad people are are this land grabbing that you write about. Talk to us about that a little bit. Oh, that's my favorite subject right now, actually. I think
3: this is fascinating. So what is happening is that um, countries, especially like China, which have run out of potable water, as I said, and arable land due to heavy industrial pollution, both agricultural and and manufacturing, um, they have been very busy buying up hundreds and hundreds of thousands of acres of land in Africa, and to some extent in South America. Um, they are by no means the only ones. We do it, too. We are doing it, too. And we, you know, a lot of that acreage is bought to uh, grow things like, um, you know, palm for palm oil or rubber or coffee or something like that. But but a great deal of it is designated for livestock feed. And that's what I'm talking about when I say that we're going to run out of arable land, because if we continue to grow the animal livestock industry, the animal agricultural industry, at the same pace that we are now, we will soon run out of food, of land on which we can plant actual food for people, because we will need to create so much forage. Well, that's the problem. They're growing, yeah, they're growing
1: all this stuff, and you know, watering the fields, and yeah. the people who live in the area have no food and no water. That's right. I mean, what happens is, is that a corporation will come in. Uh,
3: it will typically they will um, approach a nation with uh, either very weak or non-existent property laws. Um, Ethiopia is a great example. This is going on right now there, um, and they will buy uh, from a local "quote unquote" government or tribal entity. Uh, a large tract of land Well that person pockets the money But the people who have been typically growing Their own food on that These are all subsistence farmers in mm-hmm. many cases um, They then have no place to go To grow their own crops So this is creating a lot of civil unrest And there's a lot of impact On water supplies Because the water can be diverted To you know, irrigate uh, alfalfa Or soy mm-hmm. or corn And then the local people don't have enough water For their own needs so this And this is a growing trend, and it's not just happening in Africa and South America. To a certain extent, it's happening in the United States. I just finished an article um, for the New Food Economy about the fact that American um, farmers are increasingly non-landholders themselves. They're tenant farmers, mm. and that the people who own that land is, are often either a foreign corporation or... Uh, An investment, some sort of investment instrument for a financial industry uh, player. And so what is happening in that case is that, for example, in these financial industry uh, acquisitions of land, they they want to grow what's going to make them the most money off the land. So they're not really thinking in terms of growing row crops necessarily, although obviously they have a diversified portfolio. But what they're growing mostly are commodity crops, corn, soy, rice things that we trade on the world market. This is not food for the people. Right. Um, and I see that as, as something that, as water becomes more and more of a challenge, uh, particularly in drier states in the West and the Southwest, I can see that as becoming a real issue for us uh, down the road when it comes to food
1: security for the United States. Yeah. Oh, I mean, obviously, obviously it is. Mm-hmm. And and we see it uh, first and foremost in, you know, in other uh, underdeveloped developing countries, nations, yeah. yeah. Developing, developing nations, nations are really taking it on the chin with this. <clears throat> um,
3: Ethiopia has had some terrible civil unrest, which of course is you know crushed under the boot of the government. You know, people protest when these foreign corporations come in and start you know taking over the land to to grow corn or soy or palms or whatever it is, and uh, and the government is just like, well, too bad. You know, mm. it's literally
1: like tough. Yeah. Well, when when Sinclair wrote his book hundred and eleven years ago, as you say nineteen o six um you know he was of course identified as you know, as being as being a politicized mm-hmm. rant and that he was um one of them kami pinkos. there you go um, <laughs> <laughs> well i think he was a socialist at the time <laughs> and, That's what they and call yet, them, yet it uh, but but it you know but it it opened up the uh, the industry for what it was to so the view and it did indeed lead to Regular, government regulations Absolutely. on the meat industry. That's when the FDA started. Right. Exactly. Yeah. And how is, have? well, it, your book has only been out for what? A couple weeks. Two weeks, right? Yeah. Um, you know, and what are the views of that to date? Well, a lot of your work and, and your investigations prior to that. Um, and you and, and other critics like you who have written a lot of these um, these. Theses and Anti- and even industry. Temple Grandin for that. And the industry as a whole. Yeah. Well, um, I mean, are you have have you been accused of being too politicized in your views, or is it? Do you think that something may come of this?
3: Well, my goal in writing this book was to um, educate consumers about what what is the system that you're buying into when you buy cheap meat. And here are the issues. There's the there are the labor issues. There's been the you know race to the bottom for wages and protection for the workers. Uh, there are the animal welfare concerns that we're all very well aware of. There are the environmental impacts of uh, of the greenhouse gases, of the uh, water pollution, the land pollution, um, and then you know you have like sort of. Other things that people don't really think about, but the market consolidation, the impact that that's had on rural communities, uh, the fact that one company will come in and basically take over what used to be, you know, a lot of different competing industries, you know, so in so, for instance, when a Tyson takes over a town, there might have been, before that, there might have been three or four guys growing grain. There might have been a couple of different feed mills that were milling the grain for farmers. There would be a number of different genetic strains of whatever the animal was, chickens, hogs, or cattle, uh, that are being mixed and matched for hybrid vigor by local farmers. Um, you know, there'd be a few different slaughterhouses. There'd be a bunch of different butchers. You know, there was there was diversification in the stream, Right. But when a Tyson comes in, they own the feed, they own the land that grows the feed, they own the feed mill, they own the trucks for the distribution, they own the packing plant, they own the added value processing. I mean, and all of that stuff is just consolidated into one, and only a certain number of people can, you know, be employed in that one particular stream. And that has had a very significant impact on rural communities throughout the United States, in my opinion. Uh. So that's, that's just one of the things that people don't really think about when they... When they are buying into this particular system of and
1: production, on the flip side of that, though, it's keeping a lot of these farms alive, which were having a hard time surviving, you know, prior to that. And if you, you know, have the opportunity and the where and the the means to um, to enjoy one of these, you know, small farm raised, uh, truly free range and, and no, you know, no um, processed feeds. Uh, let's say chicken, for instance, mm-hmm. or you know the beef, the grass-fed beef, and the difference is amazing. It tastes like yeah. a food, and not like the chicken that we get that we are used to eating. That sort of has not a whole lot of taste. I mean, not you've a got, whole lot. Got to, no. do, got to do some interesting things with those recipes. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but that and said, there are
3: some bigger companies that are coming along that are successful. I mean, I love to blow the horn for Nyman Ranch. Because here's a company that has gotten they have over 800 farms working under this, you know, umbrella distribution system um, that was started by started Bill Nyman and, yeah. and Paul Willis, and um, and they've they've made a great uh, a great success of getting that product into grocery stores, getting that distribution, finding right. ways to... And there are some chicken companies that are doing it. and Company is a good one. Uh, there's something called Hip Chick that is also... These are West Coast companies. But mm. that's... I mean, th- it's starting to grow in the sense that more consumers are worried about where they're getting their meat from. Uh, They don't particularly want to participate in the system. And what it takes for one of those companies to succeed is nothing more nor less than volume. And so if consumers, I mean, again, to go back to why I wrote the book, if consumers are willing to do just a little bit of research into companies that they routinely see or say they read an article about somebody like Emmer and Company and they don't see it in their local grocery store, well, go on in there and say, "I I want this product. Right. And I'll tell my friends about it. You know, tr- if you can help develop those uh, those contact points and start getting better quality meats into your grocery store, then you are ultimately going to influence the way the really big players function because. When it all comes down to it it 's money I mean that 's all they 're interested in they' got assume
1: the consumer has a lot more power than they realize I think and so you know, yeah. yes, I really do yeah. interesting stuff and if you ever had a question about what that meat industry is all about and what it 's like, and then of course unfortunately, the sad part is that there are still these these terrible working conditions existing, and this hopefully will blow the lid off that, and something will have to be done to. To rectify that, you know, we'll see. But Katie Kiefer has done it. And there's a lot of a lot of information packed in this little book. I have to say, Katie, Thank it's you. called "What's the Matter with Meat?" Katie Kiefer, and it's part of the Reaction Series Food Controversies. That's right. Uh, thanks for sharing it, and you can hear Katie every week on what doesn't kill you all kinds of other food policies may not be her own research. she has really interesting guests that kind of tell us what's happening in our food world that's and right what's 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 shaping our food world and the food you eat. And I hope you've enjoyed today's program. Thanks Thank for you. listening. Thank you and, for having me on, Linda. And if you enjoy listening to Katie, and you'll have to tune into her program too, and all the other programs, there are so many great programs. There are thousands of hours of programs on Heritage Radio Network. And I urge you to help keep us on the radio as podcasts and as live streaming on the Internet. Just go to org and click on the beating red heart. Any amount counts. Or you can become a member, too, if you so want. We are a member-supported network, and we need your help. We need everyone's help. And you can also hear us on iTunes.com and Stitcher.com. If you're listening on iTunes, write a review. It helps. Thanks.